Hey, this is Michael Rosso. This is the Film Photography Podcast, the internet radio show for folks who love to shoot film. This is FPP, episode 106, July 1st, 2014. This is a big show, a big show. show. We will be talking about Minolta, Minolta cameras, the SRT, the Minolta 7000. We have the gang here. We have a special guest, Mark O'Brien, here in our remote studio at the Jones Mansion. But first, uh, our FPP correspondent, Vivian Lee, she did an interview with fine art black and white photographer Tim Rudman. So before we start the show, let's listen to Vivian interview Tim Rudman. My name is Tim, Tim Rudman. I'm a fine art black and white photographer, totally analog, shoot on film, print in the dark room. What's your style of photography? That's difficult to define. I shoot quite a lot of landscape, but not exclusively. But it's going more that way. I shoot black and white, and I print on black and white papers. But I tone them a lot, and I use other printing processes, uh, list printing in particular. And take the image somewhere else from its starting place, from a black and white record. What is it about the landscape that attracts you? I've seen stuff on your website and they are quite... Maybe there's one subject and then the rest is quite minimal. Would you agree? Some of it is. I guess it's the design I like. Design, atmosphere, mood, I think, probably the things. I don't analyse it at all and I'm quite intuitive. I don't think about how I want to structure things. It finds itself and comes together and I respond to it. You're led by what your eye sees and yeah, responds to. Yes, and by what it says to me. Can you describe your workflow? What's going through your mind as you go through different stages? I tend to see something I've always done, as long as I can remember. I tend to see the result in my head as a, as a print, as a finished print. So I tend to know, which is often quite different to how it looks in front of me. Sometimes I'll play around and say what happens if I take it this way or that way and that's good because it opens up your library of techniques and it broadens your ideas and your vision but probably most of the time I see something and I see it as a picture and I then take it with the intention of converting it into what I see in my head. So that's interesting that you're already starting out with the finished product as a print. Yeah, it just just happens, always happens that way. And what sort of equipment would you take with you on the shoot? I shoot medium format. I take a couple of bodies uh, in case one fails, bare backs, um, plenty of film, a range of lenses, tripod, pretty simple. Is this a studio type medium format camera? Does it have a movable back? Yes it does, yes. It's a Mamiya. I used to shoot a lot of 35mm because I like its spontaneous feel and the way you can respond quickly to things. But I wanted a larger negative. I don't want to work with a negative 5.4 for example wouldn't suit the way I work at all. I wanted something between 35mm and 5.4 so I choose a roll film. It's mobile, it allows me to experiment with viewpoint. I just feel it becomes an extension of me in a way that I don't think 5.4 ever would but it offers me more in some respects than 35mm. 35mm has lots of other advantages but that's all I shoot now. Do you do your own processing? What yeah, nearly always. A few times I've sent processing out but Mostly I do it myself. The print, as we discussed, is your vinyl visualisation that you go through. Hmm. Are they a literal interpretation of the scene, what you see in front of you? No. Is there an, an interpretation involved? 
There's a lot of interpretation. It's partly conscious and partly subconscious. I want my pictures to transmit not just a record of this tree or that valley. I want them to transmit a feeling, a mood, an atmosphere. And so I try to print them in such a way that that opens up that channel to the viewer to identify with and to follow if they choose to. How drastic would you take it as an interpretation? How different do they look oh, compared to the original? Different, very different. I use colour a lot, toning, and I use list printing, which abstracts the print quite a lot from reality. I mean, I have theories about why I think this works so well and why it works for me. Because I think um, black and white, of course, has an enduring place in fine art photography, not because it happened to be a historical accident that it was invented before colour, but because it simplifies the subject down to its basic elements of shape and tone and texture and light and form. Colour offers other attributes, but I think that's what where black and white takes it, and it abstracts it from reality. And this allows the viewer to identify with it in their own chosen way, rather than have to make a decision that this is a record of what the photographer saw. It is a record, of course, but it's different because it carries other messages. I think we've got so used to seeing black and white images that we almost accept them now as being reality, which they're obviously not. I use false colour tones with selenium or gold or list techniques to take them a step further away from reality. And then by the colours or the tonality that I use, and the contrast and the depth, I can offer the viewer a different feeling, perhaps at a subconscious level, that they can identify with if they choose to. Because it's not real and it's abstracted at many levels from reality, it gives the viewer, if you like, permission to interpret it and identify it with it in the way they want to. That's my theory. I don't practice it as a theory, I just respond to it and that's the way I work uh, without really thinking too much about it. But that's what's behind it. So you mentioned colour and false colour. Is the normal colour printing with cyan, magenta and yellow, is that considered a lesser art form? No. No, it's just not for me. I like what I do for me. It's my way of expressing. I liked art at school. It was my favourite subject. And I was quite good at art. And But I always drew in black and white. Charcoal, pen, ink. Um, never colour. Didn't strike me as odd. But looking back, I can see that it's always been that way with me. And then when I got into photography, it was just black and white. I turned to colour additionally much, much later for a while. But then I left it again. I was focusing on two different media, really, and I felt my black and white was losing out, so I stopped it. But colour, I mean, there are some wonderful colour work, doing beautiful work. I wouldn't denigrate it, it's just, just different. Do you use Photoshop? No, I don't. Uh, the only thing I use Photoshop for is when I scan my prints to try and make them match the print on the screen. So you don't scan your films, as most of us might do? No, you I've scan... never scanned a film. <laughs> Do you own a film scanner? Yes, I own a 35mm scanner from the days when I was doing transparencies, but I haven't used it in years. So you basically scan your print, which you've gotten as good as you possibly could, and then you put them online. Because a lot of hmm. time, what people say as a reason of why they don't print in the dark room is because the workflow is get the negative, scan it, and then you can share it online. Hmm. Do you think it makes a difference whether you scan a print or you scan a negative? Yeah. What's the difference? It makes every difference. Well, for me, I like making prints. I like certain processes, particularly list printing. Very few digital list printing uh, attempts 
really are that convincing to me. I think this printing can offer creative possibilities and flexibility of interpretation in a way that no other process can. Other processes can offer other things, obviously, but this printing is unique in what it can offer a creative mind in interpreting negatives. I don't get any satisfaction in scanning a negative and constructing a picture on the screen, a virtual picture and then printing it. I like the craft, the manual thing of holding the piece of paper and exposing it, shedding the light in different areas where I want it to fall, and then taking it through various solutions to get the image to come up and then change it, and then maybe bleach it out and then bring it back again, and then do some local bleaching, some toning. And then at the end, washed and pressed, I end up with the same piece of paper with my work on it. And I find that's what I get the pleasure from. So you can arrive at something different by printing rather than just scanning and trying to manipulate that image. Yeah. You get different results. Different, yes. But you also, there's a pleasure, I think a lot of creative people like doing things with their hands, with their artwork. It's a different connection with the work that you're making because you're making it physically rather than virtually. When you scan your prints into the computer, mm. do you feel like it might have lost some quality of your print? Yes, I think so. I mean, I'm not very skilled at scanning, and there are people who are much more capable and able in that, that department than I am. That is like another subject that you have to spend a lot of time practicing. Yes, that's right. I do the best I can, let's put it that way. What's your darkroom setup? I have um, several enlargers, uh, large sink, uh, fairly basic things really. Nothing terribly special. I'm a very simple chap. <laughs> How much time do you think you spend in it? Oh, that varies a lot. I tend to print for longish periods, and if I've only got an hour, I, I won't go in the darkroom. So I tend to not go in unless I've got a reasonable bit of time to devote to it, and then I tend to spend a good bit of time there. What's a reasonable bit of time? <laughs> a number of hours, maybe a day. A lot of us don't have dedicated space to print at home, and space might be shared or might have other purposes. Mm -hmm. Setting up equipment every time can feel like a chore. Are there oh, any yeah. dark room setups you've come across that offer a reasonable balance between practicality and space? There are lots of setups that people use. The bathroom, of course, is a common one because it has running water. It has certain problems with uh, access. Yes. For a few hours at a time. Yes, that's right. Yes. <laughs> if it's the only bathroom in the house, of course, that can, that can present a lot of problems. But uh, on the other hand, if you're in there, you can multitask and do two things at the same time. Do you recommend that? <laughs> well, it's just the way you like to work. <laughs> Is it essential to have the running water? No. I used a community darkroom when I was teaching myself to print right at the beginning. But then later, when I moved away from London, I used a friend's darkroom and that was in a caravan at the bottom of her garden. There was no water there, so it was a question of carrying down buckets and putting prints in the bucket and then carrying them back afterwards. Water is a, a great convenience. It makes a lot of difference. But you can set up a darkroom without running water if you have to. I guess the light tightness is more important light than the water. Light tightness is essential, yes. And ventilation. You know, just sealing off everything and sealing yourself into a sealed box with noxious liquids isn't a very good idea. I have felt a bit sick once because I forgot to switch on the ventilation. Mm -hmm. I've heard a lot of people speak fondly about their first experiences of learning to print, the magic of seeing the image appear yeah, yeah. on the sheet of paper from nowhere. That's right. After this initial enthusiasm, we don't always prioritize the time and effort to the process. 
What made you fall in love with darkroom printing in the first place and continue to devote so much time to an activity that involves spending hours in a dark and smelly room? <laughs> I've got quite a big room, so it doesn't get too smelly and I've got a good ventilation system, so that helps. And it doesn't feel too claustrophobic because it's quite a good space. And I have music playing in there a lot. That's really important, really important piece of equipment. <laughs> I have a range of musical tastes and uh, sometimes Sometimes I can't print with what I'm playing and I have to find something that is in sympathy with the mood I've got at that time. So yes, it plays quite an important part. And with list printing, some of my processes are very slow in the developer because I like to dilute the developer a lot. And I may sit rocking the dish waiting for the print to come up for a quarter of an hour. And if you've got no music or uh, nothing on the radio, then it's a long quarter of an hour. But if you've got your favorite music on, it's not. So yeah, music is really important for me. What started me printing? I saw a book when I was a medical student and I was in the bookshop browsing through anatomy and physiology books that I couldn't afford and I saw this black and white photography book by Sam Haskins and up until that point I'd used the camera at home when I was little and uh, when I was a boy but only just as a recording medium and suddenly I saw these what struck me as really quite daring images I'd never seen anything like that photographically before black and white dynamic things taken on the tilt, very, very grainy, huge grain, uh, white skin tones and other whites blasted out to pure paper-based white. So there was a lot of positive and negative space and it was just used in a very graphic form which struck me powerfully. I thought it was amazing and I knew at that moment, standing there with that book, that this was what I had to do and that this would be my route. And within two weeks I'd found myself a dark room and was teaching myself to print. Wow, what amazing to be able to actually pinpoint yes, the moment. I can that, see it in my mind's eye. I can see that. See the it. moment that defines the yeah. rest of your life. Yes. And that enthusiasm has continued or even overtaken other things. Yes, yes. With all those years of experience that you had, you've come to become a bit of an expert in the subject. How many people do you think there are currently in a similar level of expertise as you practicing? Oh, goodness knows. Lots, I imagine. There aren't as many people in the dark room these days as there used to be. I wouldn't have any idea how to answer that question. When you've reached a pinnacle, you can know a lot about the subject and it becomes harder to learn something new. When was the last time you remember learning something new about darkroom printing? Oh, that's an interesting question. Hmm, I haven't thought about that. One of the things I've always found fun and useful is playing in darkroom rather than just working in a darkroom. Experimenting. Yes, and thinking, what happens if, what happens if I put it in here after trying that toner and just just for fun and you make a lot of mistakes and as long as you learn from them before you throw them in the learning bin which is what I call the waste bin every so often you'll find some golden moment which teaches you something wonderful a technique which you've never seen never heard of and gives you a lovely result and that becomes then part of your regular armory of interpretive techniques uh, I've always tended to do that, either going there to play around and have fun or to make work. How often would you devote this R&D time lesson? <laughs> I don't know, it's less than it used to be, obviously, when you have a smaller knowledge base and you've got a lot more learning to do. You, I guess you tend to do that more. Well, I did anyway. Printing is something that's easy to pick up but difficult to master. 
as well as the time and the space, having the right person to ask when we get stuck is important to help us advance our skills and knowledge, whatever our level. You teach fine printing. What sort of people come to your class? Do they tend to be quite advanced? Oh, it's a complete mix. People who are early in their learning curve uh, and people who've been printing for a long time. Really all levels. I'm always surprised. What a mix. And I used to always be surprised on workshops that it didn't seem to matter. Initially, I was concerned that maybe we'd have somebody who was just learning, just starting out learning, and someone who'd been printing for 40 years, and that that would present a problem. But it never does. Why is that? I think because both come with objectives of their own. I like the longer workshops. I do five-day workshops in the States quite a lot, and they're residential. So we have a lot of time to spend with each person. So I can work with each person, whatever level they're working on, and I don't think it matters in the slightest. And what's really interesting is that people who've been printing for a very long time quite often are going down a very narrow path and they can learn a lot from seeing people who are just starting and experimenting in ways that they haven't yet done and it can open up their imagination. So I think both sides can benefit from that sort of mixture. If someone has only just started, they shouldn't be afraid to come to one of your classes. Oh, no, 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 no. As long as they have the basic skills required for that workshop, Now, for example, if I'm running a a lift printing workshop, it's really important only that people know how to make a print at a basic level, a black and white print. They know what a developer is, a stop path and a fixer, and that you transfer it along that line with the appropriate intervals of time. Beyond that, they don't need any other skills really, no. What you're teaching in all of those courses is fine printing. What is a fine print? (laughs) That's a tricky question. Uh, you'll get probably as many answers as photographers you ask that question. Well, Ask 10 well, photographers, you'll get 12 replies. You'll does, get 12 opinions. How does this <laughs> photographer reply? <laughs> oh, I don't know. You're avoiding the question? Yes. I haven't thought about it. And I, I don't think, actually think it matters. I mean, I print for how I want to print, and I make artwork that I like to make, and it's coming from inside me. And that's really all it's about for me. And if people call it fine printing or someone else calls it something else, then it doesn't really matter. It's just words. So make something that you can be proud of. Yes, absolutely. The process to earn the experience necessary to make a print and judge how good it is can be frustrating. Do you have any good printing tips for beginners to get over any initial barriers or difficulties to getting better print results? Yeah, be persistent and be very critical. A lot of people aren't very critical of what they do. What should we be looking for when we're criticising our print? I think we should look for whether it's really the best we can do at that stage of our development, whether it's really what we want, what we wanted, or whether it's it'll do. And I don't think you should ever accept that. Are there any techniques that we can use if we get stuck that we might think about, can I apply that maybe to my print? Would that make it better? I think cleanliness. <laughs> I'm not talking about personal hygiene. I'm talking about being meticulous in your care of printing and how you handle prints through the chemicals and 
If you're making black and white prints and maybe toning them with selenium, you can get away with a lot of slackness and sloppiness in your technique and it won't show too much. But if you're going to take it further into other toners or any bleach and redevelopment, particularly any process that involves bleach and then bringing the image back again in any form, then all these shortcomings will come back and haunt you and you'll find fingerprints in the middle of your picture or splash marks or streaks that you couldn't see in the black and white image. And they're only there because the technique was a bit careless, a bit sloppy. So develop careful, consistent, clean techniques. Don't pull from the print too early unless you've got a very good reason for doing so. Just use good lab technique. and That's not difficult, really, to learn. I guess your advice, if I could sum it up, is treat your print with love and respect throughout the whole process of printing. That's a very good way of putting it. You mentioned lith printing before. Why do you think you enjoy it so much? Because it's creative. It offers you an almost unlimited way of interpreting an image. It has the ability to print very soft, low contrast, smooth, creamy, very warm tones in the highlights, and also print the shadows in very high contrast with very gritty, large grain texture and cold tones. And you can balance those print which is developed for longer will develop more of the latter properties and a print which is pulled earlier from the developer because you never develop to completion with this printing will have more of the fine grain properties. The reason it works is because lift developer is unlike conventional developer in that it has basically two stages of development and the first stage develops little silver grains in the paper to a very tiny size and then after some time the darker tones start to accelerate away as they develop they release an accelerator around them which makes them go faster and the faster they go the darker they go and the darker they go the faster they go and so you get this exponential rush in the shadow tones and if you leave it long enough those large grains that that's developing will work their way through the whole print and you'll have a print which is grainy, high contrast, cold in tone. If you pull it earlier, you have a print which is warm in tone, soft and smooth and creamy and low in contrast. And you can produce both those properties on the print at the same time and you can shift the point at which they cross over so you've got more of one or more of the other. This creates a picture which may be very dissimilar to the picture that you took. So it's very creative and it allows you tremendous flexibility. You're basically pulling the print at different times to manipulate yes. or influence the way it will end up. Yes, and you can do other things to it as well. You could change the developer, you can change the dilution of the developer. That makes a huge difference. With some papers, it makes an enormous difference. And change the temperature, you can add little bits of this and that into the developer to make it behave slightly differently. That's all, you know, a little bit further down the line of your learning. But um, it's really quite a simple process. It had, always has this mystique of being incredibly difficult. That's only, I think, because people don't understand it properly. So how did you learn to understand it? Is it just by trial I taught and myself, yes. <laughs> you mentioned that you studied medicine before. Yes. Do you think that ability to understand technical things and perhaps a meticulous training in note-taking helped you to rein down this process that yes. is considered a bit wild? Yes, definitely. Yes, when I started lift printing, there was very little written about it. I couldn't find out much of how to do it. It had the reputation of being uncontrollable and unpredictable, so that when you made a lift print, it was alleged that you never knew what it was going to look like, and having got it, you'd never be able to repeat it. And neither of those things are true. You can predict it 
pretty accurately and you can repeat it very closely. It's just a question of understanding what's going on in the dish, making careful notes and doing the same thing again. Does it need a special paper? Uh, yes. Hesitation there. Not all black and white papers list print very well. Sadly, a lot of the black and white papers that list printed particularly well have disappeared now. And there's a market developing for these papers because they're pursued by people who like to make list prints. But there is a way around this. In that papers that don't list print very well, you can make a black and white print, process it carefully, make sure you get all the fixer out of it and wash it carefully, and then bleach it all away. And then you can process that in List Developer and make a list print. And now I call that second pass list printing, which was a term I coined to distinguish it from other bleach and redevelopment methods, as in toning, for example. And I call it second pass list because the paper goes through two list passes, and the second one, which is list developer, and the first one maybe, but is probably just black and white developer. So this is using any ordinary printing paper? And you can paper? use pretty much any paper. Almost every paper will work with that. They will all give different results. Some give prints that look like conventional list prints, and some give prints which give something you can't get with conventional list printing. So it's a very useful technique, and it's also pretty easy, and you do it with the lights on so you can see exactly what's happening. Once you've got your black and white print, all bleach and redevelopment is done under room light, so that makes it very easy to control. A chance to get some fresh air. Yes, and a chance to get some fresh air. It's best not to do it in strong direct sunlight, because the ultraviolet will make the print print out as you're working with it. Is this an extra process then, to use normal paper than a lith paper? Yes, it, it's an extra level, but if you tone your prints, you're always doing another level anyway, and it's really very like that. Make a black and white print, uh, wash it, and then you can either carry straight on and put it in a bleach and redevelop it in lith developer, or you can come back and do it weeks or months or even years later. What papers do you use for your own work when you're doing list printing? I've got a lot of papers. I've stored them carefully away in various fridges and freezers, <laughs> which I keep for that purpose. And it was clear that some of them were going to disappear off the market, and so I made sure I had good stocks. So I have those. I use current papers largely for second-pass list, which can be very beautiful. So you're using out-of-production paper and current paper with oh, second yeah. pass? Yes, definitely, yeah. One of my favourite current papers is Ilford Multigrade Warm Tone for second pass list, which can give you very beautiful results, which can look like a list print, or if you just take them a little bit longer in the developer, they start to revert to black and white and then you'll end up back with the black and white print where you started. But in between, there's a lovely hybrid look where you get grey-silvery highlights and brown lithy midtones and gritty blacks. So that and that can look really beautiful because there's a lot to be gained by playing off warm and cold tones with the print. You can use that to add depth, to separate planes in an image from each other, rather like a pop-up book with different levels of planes going back through the landscape in different tones or colours and warm and cold is a very good way for separating those. So I guess that's a good paper if you haven't tried list printing before to start with? For second pass list, yes. You can make list prints, first pass list prints with it, but it's not my favourite for that. What's a good paper to use? Are they, if, are they still making it? Very few of the current ones um, really make good first pass list printing. Uh, the Russian paper Slavich Unibrom does, but it's harder to handle. 
it can respond quite aggressively in this developer and it can be very contrasty and the second stage where the blacks come up can come unexpectedly suddenly around different parts of the print there are ways of overcoming that but it's it's a more difficult paper to learn on if you can find on ebay papers that haven't been opened preferably <laughs> from sterling kentmere nearly all the kentmere papers were lovely for list printing forte papers were nearly all beautiful for list printing sterling from india was very good the prices of those paper might have just gone up now that you've mentioned that <laughs> Do you have any quick tips for beginners of list printing if you want to try out this weird process that's a bit difficult to control? What can we do to kind of not discourage ourselves? The basics of list printing are fairly simple. Firstly, the paper has to be very heavily overexposed. And the reason for that is it's going to be snatched from the developer partway through development. Because it's only a little bit developed, it would be very pale on the paper. So you need to expose it by two or three extra stops. Now, a stop, remember, doubles the in terms of time it doubles the exposure so if you were giving a, a black and white print 15 seconds to expose it adding a couple of stops first stop will make that 30 seconds you're adding another stop will not make that another 15 seconds it doubles it again so it will be 60 seconds and if you're going to add three stops to it that would make it 120 seconds so you get very long exposures and that's really important otherwise the print would be too pale and then put it in your list developer dilute the list developer and the more you dilute it the more striking the results can be with some papers and be patient and put some music on and sit and watch it and don't try and rush it and watch it carefully and at this point I find a little red safe light torch invaluable because that helps me to watch the blacks emerging where they're coming up and then snatch the paper at exactly the point I want when they're just right and into the stop bath and stop all the development as quickly as possible. And from then it's a fix. The image will change again in the fixer. It'll lighten a bit and it'll look as if it's lightened much more than it really has but you can't see under the safe light the color changes in the print and it changes to a color which is only partly visible under safe light so never judge it until you have fixed it and put the light on and then when you dry it it'll usually darken again anyway and that's the time to judge it Whew. yeah it's actually easy it sounds much more complicated but it's pretty easy to do and keep notes because you'll think that you remember all these things that you did but you won't consistent note taking is the key to success yeah, really really important yes just make a note on the back of the print even if it's just a number and then annotate that in your lab book and write it down and then when you come back to look at all your prints they'll look different when they're dry you can look at the number and see what you did in printing courses, the teaching process seems to start with an introduction to the enlarger, how you expose the negative onto the paper, but it doesn't go before that, at the point where you choose the negative. Does the negative have an influence on how good our print is going to be? Yeah, I mean it's difficult to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, so if you start with a really awful negative, there's only so much you can do with it. What should we be looking for when we're selecting a negative? Well, the negative that will offer you what you want to get out of it as a print, I suppose, is the obvious answer. It may be you want a full range of tones, and you will be looking for a tonality in the shadows and in the highlights on your negative. Because if it's not on the negative, you can't print it onto the paper. If it is on the negative, you don't have to print it onto the paper. You can change contrast, you can drop tones out of the highlights or the shadows. You can change it a lot through list printing or toning or bleaching. So you can take stuff away, but you can't put in detail that isn't on the negative to start with. I like to make sure I have all the tones I could want 
provided I've got that, and then I have a flexible negative that I can take in all sorts of different directions when I'm printing it, and that's ideal for what I like to do. If you're working with high contrast graphics as your end result, then you may want a negative that reflects that, and you may not want as many tones in it. So see that print first. Yes, if, if you have an idea in your head, this is another thing that I like about list printing because it's so flexible. You can take the negative in, off in different directions. Provided you had tones on the negative to start with, you could interpret that as a really soft, delicate, romantic, atmospheric image, or you could interpret it as a hard, graphic, high-contrast design image. When we imagine a high-contrast image, we might use a high-contrast film. Hmm. This kind of frees you from that. Yes, if that's what you want to do. It depends on knowing what you want to make on the print. I mean, if I were printing high contrast graphic design in cold black and white, and then I would start with a negative which reflected that. I wouldn't use a full range of tones on the negative and then try and do it through lift printing. You're starting from the wrong place. What's one of some of your favourite film stocks to use? I currently use Delta most of the time. I used to use a lot of the Kodak infrared on 35mm, which is beautiful for... Um, <laughs> yes, I know you're shaking your head. You can't get it now. But there are other infrared films which are... They don't have the same infrared penetration wavelengths that Kodak had, but they offer a different negative. And because list printing particularly is all about celebrating highlights, it marries up beautifully with infrared film. So I used to use those two in combination quite a lot. What extra does it offer you? It offers you a range of tones that you can't see with the eye. Uh, we can't see infrared, but infrared film can see further into the infrared spectrum than we can. And so it gives you a different tonality in the image, which strikes the viewer as different because it's, a bit, again, a bit abstracting from reality. That's what black and white does. That's what uh, this printing does a bit further. That's what toning with a false colour does a bit further. And it's part of a creative process. Is infrared film more tricky to print? No, I don't think so. So you would treat it as any other negative that you would print? Yeah. In what form do you think the craft of darkroom printing will appear in the future? How is it going to carry on? I am pretty confident it'll carry on. I think it'll be a sort of boutique fine art process. And people still make daguerreotypes. <laughs> people make cyanotypes, salt prints. Why should black and white printing disappear? I can't see that happening. So its value will be in a fine art world? Yes, yes. Do you think there are enough people who can appreciate the difference that a really fine print can make compared to something on a digital print that doesn't really carry the same three-dimensional view to mm. it? I think there are people who can and do, yes. We have to educate our eye to see it. Yes, but that's true of everything in life, isn't it? It's true of appreciating art in general. It's true of appreciating wine, food. You know, you have to educate your eye or your palate. What future things have you got in planned? New classes or books or what's in the pipeline? I'm working on a new book at the moment, so um, watch this space. It's going to be an image-based book rather than a technique book. I hope it'll come out next year. I want to produce it myself. All my books have been through publishers in the past. I like the idea of making a book myself. So it's going to be self-published almost certainly. Um, I haven't decided that for sure. So it's a question of finding the right designer, finding the ideas that I want to come together uh, and someone who can work with me on that. Any other classes or activities? 
Well, I don't run a, a darkroom course business. I respond usually when I can to requests. Uh, I like teaching. I mean, I don't, I don't do that for a living, but I like to play my little part in keeping it alive and passing on the information. And I love that feeling when you see the light come on in someone's eyes when they get it, and it's exciting. So I enjoyed that. So if anyone's interested in taking a class with you, maybe they can get together with some yes. photo society or group and <laughs> yes. I do send you an invitation. I, I do it less than I used to for various reasons, but uh, yes, I still do it. Tim Rutman? Thank you very much for speaking to Film Photography Project. Thank you, Vivian. It's been delightful. Thank you. Introduces an economy model of the famous color pack camera for half the price of the original. Same great film. Same fast loading. Same electric eye. Yet it's half the price of the original model. You get the same beautiful color prints in 60 seconds, black and white in 10, in the same big size. Yet it's half the price of the original model. Isn't it your turn to own a Polaroid color pack camera? Hey, we're back. We're back. We're in the studio, our remote studio in Finlay, Ohio, at the Jones Mansion. And today, I'll introduce first our very special guest, first time ever on the FPP, Mr. Mark O'Brien. Hi, Mark. Hey, Mark. Uh, Hello, everybody. How are you? (laughs) Good. In the studio today, to my right, is John Fideli. How are you doing? Mark Dalzell. Hi. Dane Johnson. Hello. And of course, Leslie Lazenby. Hi, everyone. Matt is out and about. Somewhere. And on today's show, we're going to be talking about... Well, I mean, let's get right into it. Yes. Uh, Oh, before I start, I really do want to thank uh, Vivian Lee for recording that interview. I must mention that uh, I need to give a special... I want to give a special shout-out to Silverprint. Vivian used Silverprint's meeting room for the recording session, and they are a shop in London that sells all, all sorts of supplies for the analog photographer. The link will be in our show notes. Cool. And what show notes? They moved to a new location in 2013. The new location also serves as a darkroom and gallery space. Tim Rudman set up an exhibition there uh, that was uh, previous, you know, earlier in the year. Mm-hmm. So a big shout out to Silverprint. If you're in, is there film in there? No. If, there, if you're in London, go to Silverprint. Big thank you to them. I will. Thank you, John. Yes. Let's do a letter. One letter. All right, one letter. Let's do a letter. Uh, this one comes from Richard J. Holt. and says, I was delighted to find your website and your interest in receiving donations for usable film cameras. My son passed away a few years ago, and I've been looking for an organization such as yours that can put his equipment to good use which, of course, we will. Yes. Enclosed is an Olympus and Canon film camera with lenses, which I trust will provide many hours of film photography pleasure. Yes, we will. A confirmation would be greatly appreciated. Richard, this is your confirmation. <laughs> no, no, I, I mailed oh, okay. uh, Richard a confirmation. Thank you very much. It's always great to see uh, donations, and um, we'll put that to good use, someone who's right. really going to love it. Folks out there listening, if you have any cameras, cameras or film that, you know, cameras that work and film that's hopefully not shot, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be chit-chatting with uh, Mark O'Brien. Introducing the amazing... 
amazing Minolta Maxim, the world's easiest SLR, because it alone has built-in automatic focusing. Look, Maxim's autofocus lets you get perfect shots before others can even focus. Change lenses, Maxim again gets the shots that used to get away. Only the human eye focuses faster. Minolta Maxim, only from the mind of Minolta. Hey, we're back. <laughs> hey, Mark. Hey, how you doing? Mark has informed me, you know, offline that I was like, oh, you're never on the show. He's like, oh, my God. Uh, Matt Marash interviewed me at Photostock mm. either last year or the year before. Three years ago. Oh, my God. Nah, Where's the time going? Yeah, I don't know. And, but this is the first time actually on the show. That's right. What show? For the folks out there uh, listening who did not hear the earlier show and John Fideli, like a refresher. Like, <laughs> like I know that you are... A member of the uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan Crappy Camera Club. That's correct. You know about that, Mark? That sounds like my kind of club. I've read about it online, yeah. And, of course, uh, we all know, like, where's that little cockroach? (laughs) That I study bugs. Mark's going to be able to tell us exactly what type of bug this is. Take it down, pass it around. Take a bite, pass it down. Now, the thing is, look out. The interesting (laughs) thing, Mark, is I, like, used to be terrified of, like, terrified of bugs. Up until just a few years ago. Were you always from New Jersey? Yes. Well, that explains it. Is it really? That's right, yeah. New Jersey bugs. Well, tell me why. Because there are lots of bugs. Yes, we do. New Jersey has a lot of bugs. Yeah, big roaches. Did they come over from people when they came from different countries? No, and... they probably came from New York. Re- from New York? <laughs> no, sure. for a fact, you, when you think of New Jersey, you'd say New Jersey does have a lot of bugs? Yeah, they do. Why, I suppose that is? More, more than any other bugs. state? No, not more than any other well, state. There's a lot of bugs. Because what about south? You have, well, you have all those marshes. Well, you used to have lots of marshes. Meadowlands, yes. Meadowlands, yeah. And those, those had a lot of insects that live in the marshes and so forth. Okay. What I actually study for my main interest are dragonflies. So. Ooh. Oh. And uh, that's, I work for U of M in Ann Arbor. And so I'm a collection manager there. And I've been there for 33 years. Wow. U of M. Wow. Yeah. Uh, almost as old as I Good am. Blues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell us one, one, what, what is like the most interesting fact about dragonflies? Some well, can migrate thousands of miles. Really? Yeah. About the fire breathing. Wow. Yeah. Oh, there's no and dragon. Their nickname? Oh, okay. What's that? Their nickname? Their nickname? They have lots of nicknames. My uh, favorite is uh, the marvelous Snake feeders are one of them. Marvelous Whoa. Helicopters. Helicopters. Oh, Devil's, yeah. Devil's darning needle is another oh, one. Oh, yes. They would Ooh. sew your lips together. If you told a lie, supposedly. oh, is that right? Oh. So my, when you're a kid, you see helicopter. one on the screen, you go, "Oh my gosh, there's a it's going to sew my lips together." My GI Joe wow. helicopter when I was a kid was the dragonfly. That's yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, what are the it's bugs there in New Jersey when it's a little more moist? They're in the house. They're long. They have a million legs. Centipedes. And, and when you go to kill them, they're practically air. Yeah. Like, like they they have no. Uh, oh, the fuzzy ones. They're not juicy. They practically oh, no, just no. It's no. like they're. It's like when you hit no, them with a magazine. They I'm just sorry, disintegrate. I, I, I'm sorry to tell you, I, I hit them with a magazine. Oh well. They disintegrate. They kind of disintegrate. Like there's nothing. How to big them. are they? Like this big. They're probably they're probably house centipedes. Yeah. Yeah, and they're actually beneficial because they eat the bugs that are in your that house. That is what Justin told See? me. See, there yeah. you go. I, I've, I've tried to stop you. killing them, but they terrify me. Well, they're <laughs> kind of creepy looking. They come up. They're very fast. Yes, they're very fast. And they got long legs. Long legs. And so that. Terrifies the crap out of a lot of people. So if I'm not seeing them in my house, are they actually still in my house? In yes. the in the Shoot. cracks? Yeah. And you don't want to know. You don't want to know where they are. They might <laughs> be going through your underwear drawer. <laughs> oh, they no, crawl on you while you sleep. Oh, exactly yeah. how many. See, now you, you, you should you should stop right there, Mike. Stop right there. How many are in my house at one given time? It may only be a couple. Oh, okay, that's good. But they breed. How many, do they, how many babies do they have? <laughs> I don't know. I will, I will try not to stay off topic too long. How about spiders? 
How many spiders <laughs> nope. are in my house at one given time? Nope. No spiders. Probably more than you want to know. The spiders are good, though, right? Yeah, they're good. They're just people. Are they creepy, eat ants. Creeped out by them for who knows why. I like spiders. But some can have a nasty bite. Some can, but yeah. the likelihood is small. That's good and you know, know. You're, you're probably a million times bigger than they are. Yeah. So, so yeah. the ones with the nasty yeah. bite are the ones that hide in your shoes, right? Uh, amongst other places. Look, Ross, there's the old Western dying. movies they always well, did. Yeah. I tell you, I've really gotten over my phobia. Well, good for you. Even like stink bugs. Uh-huh. They're, they're in New Jersey now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They don't really over. bother me anymore. Okay. Except when they like, they'll, they'll actually they'll fly into the side of your head. They do. Well, just don't squish them. You know anything yeah, about stink right. bugs? Well, they, they can vary. Some are beneficial because yeah. they eat other insects, and others are bad because they eat the bugs. They eat the plants that you're eating. Yes. You know, yes, of course. Eating. Have a big barrier in your mouth, and you don't oh. see there's a stink bug on the other side. You pop it in there. <laughs> no. Oh, oh that would taste horrible. That's ruined your day. day. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. What? Uh, you have so to floss that day. So for sure. uh, we'll get back on topic of cameras, but generally speaking, bugs they should just be left as is. Yes. There's a, there's a thousands and thousands of species. We've co we've co inhabited this plant with them for a very short time. Right. Yeah. A lot longer than we have. I have yeah. one last question. Yeah. <laughs> is it true that sometime in your lifetime when you're sleeping, a spider will come down on one thread and, and like get into your mouth? I don't think so. That's a like that's a, an old way. You're not yeah. going to be able to live in there, especially your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> now nah, we're going to have to brush my teeth or something. We're going to have to sneak in Mike's room tonight and set that one up. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> but U of M, tell me about Bring the U of M. Uh, okay, I work there as a collection manager. We have about uh, three and a half to four and a half million specimens in our collection. Well, Jeez, living? Specimens? No, they're dead. Oh. They're dead. What does U of M mean? University of Michigan. Oh, excellent. It means um, And since um, we're down here in Ohio, you know, it, yeah. it's uh, a little bit testy if I tell people that if they're because mm. they're, they're crazy down here about football. Mm-hmm. That's why I could care less. Michigan. I was thinking of getting a Michigan shirt. Uh-huh. Oh, I checked. They have them. I know they have them, but okay. my, my life in danger wearing them. Yeah. Depends yeah. where you are. We're in Kimosabis. I would say so. I would, from the looks that of that guy place, at the bar with yeah. the big Ohio They were all State college shirt. kids. Yeah. They looked yeah. like they'd like beat me. <laughs> I was going to say, what's worse? <clears throat> a Michigan shirt or a New York City shirt? Michigan, Michigan shirt. Okay. Are the, are the specimens in your lab? Well, we have this large collection space with drawer, okay. multiple drawers in there. And, and, but the insects are just Sorry. one part of the museum. We actually have... Birds and mammals and reptiles and amphibians and fish and and so we are one of the largest museum university museums in, in North America. Right. Wow. Did not know that. Interesting. Now, are you a photography hobbyist or do you uh, shoot professionally? Since I spend more money than I make from it, I would. <laughs> I'm a hobbyist. There you oh, go. Okay. And but I. I probably have always had a camera in my hand since I was uh, early teens, and uh, I probably wasn't until about 1999 or 2000. I really thought seriously about getting serious about photography and right. becoming proficient and and spending lots of money. Do you have lots of photos of bugs? Actually, not that much. What? Except Mark. in my work, I take photographs. Uh, for cataloging. Of and yeah. For various things. Mm-hmm. John doesn't subscribe to you on his Flickr. Like you're not a following. Mark. I don't think so. Okay, no. well, if you looked on my Flickr page, you would see that I have a, only a very small number of pictures of bugs and uh-huh. other mm-hmm. insects, but lots and lots of photographs of everything else. Oh, very nice. Oh, get that man out of here. It's, it's Mark <laughs> calling him. Usher, Usher. <laughs> Actually, I just sent him a text. It was Mark. Oh, oh, nice. <laughs> well, how many cameras do you have? Oh, I hate that question because everyone thinks that I have a, a bazillion cameras. I used to. And I pared everything down as to a low 
yeah. to a low number now. Mm-hmm. In terms What's a low of cameras number? I shoot with frequently, there's probably about 25 cameras that I use mm-hmm. on a rotating basis, mm-hmm. and the rest are either display items or things I occasionally pull out of the box. It sounds reasonable. With. Yeah, it sounds, yeah, yeah. It sounds very I mean, reasonable. some people go through life with one camera, right? Mark's, and, Mark's and they like, shoot, nah, right. shoot oh, okay. you know, two Christmases, and then they get their film developed when yeah. they did that kind yeah, of thing. Right. Yeah, right. And mostly what I have, I have a lot of Nikon gear. That's mm-hmm. my favorite system. Mm-hmm. But I've gone through, I, there's probably no system I haven't shot with at some point or tried out. Now, you've been shooting, I'm guessing you've been shooting, you know, shooting film photography, mm-hmm. shooting film since you were a kid. Oh, like, of course, yeah. Did you start like with the I could have been really avant-garde and shot digital when I was about 12, but they hadn't invented it yet. Right. What, <laughs> what was your first format as a child? Oh, 126. 126. Wow. Yeah, in Somatic, yeah. Okay. In Somatic, 104 was the Nice. Was the did you just bum like the family camera? I think it was probably it, and then it became mine. Uh, same, that's very common. Yeah. Yeah. And then my, my first real, real camera was an exact uh, Exa 1A. Ooh. Oh, I just got a 1B. Okay, well, I got it, it was my uh, a gift for me in high school, and then I shot with that for about, oh, geez, about 10 years before I got a new SLR. Mm. Wow, what is that camera? It's a 35-millimeter oh, camera that has a wasteful viewfinder. And really? It's, the, the Exas were their cheapest model that Exacta produced, and it probably came from that uh, camera store in New York that had all the great ads that used to be in the back of Shutterbug and all the like Olden Camera, one of those. It wasn't Olden; it was another one, and I can't remember the name of it. it was, but they had um, all kinds of weird stuff that they sold. Spire, they sold Spirotone stuff a lot, and uh, but it was about 1973 or four. And that camera, when did you? When did your camera collection start growing? About mm, 2000, 2001. Okay. So I've only been doing this f- seriously for about 14 years. It's amazing how much stuff you can pick up in that time. Oh, yeah. no, absolutely. I'm amazed. Look at you think, it's, table be- in there. You think <laughs> it's because people dumping so many cameras that it's more accessible? I think so now. Uh, when I first got back, or first started doing it seriously, I mean, it, film was, was, was still king. Now I can get cameras that I lusted after back then mm. for a mm. fraction of yeah, what they right. would have cost. Even used. Right. I got recently bought a Mamiya uh, C330, and I love that camera. And I liked it so much, I sold my Hasselblad stuff because I, wow. I oh. decided that the Mamiya was the the medium format that took square images that I really really like better. Wow. Do you live in Ann Arbor? I live in Ann Arbor. I live two miles from work, so I don't have to commute. I okay. Can take the bus, just like you city guys. Yeah. And how did this crappy camera club come to be? Oh, in 2006, a bunch of us got together. We had a mutual interest in using pinhole and holgas and so forth. And it was about six or seven of us that got together in Ann Arbor. And we had an um, exhibit, a very daunting first thing, was to have an exhibit in February or March of 2007. And we had a show uh, downtown at a, at a loft place. And it was amazing. People came in all over the place to uh, see it from Ann Arbor. And we had lines going out the door the opening night. And, wow. And uh, it was... Really? And, and I've never... And we've had other exhibits, but none have been as goofy as that one in, in terms of a first effort. It was uh, pretty well received. We had a lot of press on it. And I, we had, I thought we had some pretty good, pretty good images in it, too. That's awesome. And so since then, we've, done a, we've had different, different shows. We've gotten together and done uh, little projects. We put out a little book that we did on Blurb. Oh, cool. um, we've done some other things with um, other groups. But we've also 
maintain a small core of people and it keeps we have probably maybe around a dozen to 14 people continually that show up at our monthly meetings right can people join the Ann Arbor, Michigan, crappy camera club, like people who live elsewhere, can they join by mail? Uh, they could join, but it wouldn't do them much good because <laughs> they wouldn't be able to come and do our functions. Uh, um, yeah. But there's a Flickr group, and you can oh. search for it on Flickr, and you can, and we also have a Facebook group, too. Okay. That's cool. So what's on the list? That's be my question. Like, what, what, what do you got to have on, what's on the list to actually get a... Uh, Get in the group. Like, what's the what's a crappy camera that you you have to oh, have? Oh, the, the funny the, the joke now is though it's it's sort of like a, an inside joke about calling it crappy camera because really it's it's the film photography club is really what it is. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so when we started out, it was yeah Holgas and things yeah, like sure. that, yeah. and and then it, it morphed into I mean we have meeting people bring their Hasselblads and all oh, that okay. Leicas yeah, and Leicas and so forth so it's really the I hate using the term it, analog but the analog film yeah, analog I get group you. Mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, we have uh, we're doing going to start working on a t-shirt contest within the group soon and so we'll have a snazzy t-shirt design and, yeah and things like that yeah snazzy's snazzy. good one year we had a, a photographic show at the recycle reuse center hmm. and the theme was we had to use frames. That we that were recycled frames and use as much recycled products as we could in the in the show. So that was really one of our more interesting shows because people came in the recycle reuse center. That's that's where we actually had it. They had a special room there with all our with our framed and matted prints using recycled woods in some cases and other mm-hmm. recycled frames and so forth. And uh, it was like the the strangest place to have an exhibit at, but it really worked. Have a good theme, pull it all together. Yeah, we had a good theme. People would would come in and they they say, "Oh yeah, can I buy that frame?" Seriously? <laughs> yeah, sure, five hundred bucks. Yeah. Can yeah. new new it's people yours. join the the club or like is there hazing involved? No hazing. Yeah. We don't even have a secret handshake. If it did, it would be something hazing. like how to roll film in the dark or something. Oh like yeah, run through ah, the sprockets. That'd be yeah. good. Yeah. Free spooling to six twenty. Yeah, you're in. Yeah, we don't have any. Yeah, right. Come right. back next week. We don't have any rituals or anything. Yeah, that's a pain in the butt. We gotta get <laughs> we gotta get something going on. How often do new people try to join? Often have people show up at the meetings. We usually meet at the corner brewery in Ypsilanti. Right. And, it's always uh, a good place to meet. Yeah, it is a good place, and uh, we. We're trying to spread out and, and have some other meeting venues so we can have talks and so forth because it's kind of hard to have a, a speaker at a bar. Now, you know, every time we see you at events and whatnot, you always have boxes and boxes of stuff. Like, where does all stuff come from? <laughs> I wish I knew because it just, oh. I think it breeds in my basement. Do people nice. bring it Freeze to like you? bugs. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> in many cases, yeah. People bring me stuff and they say, you know, I, here's some things or, mm. or someone. I know too many people who were old and passed away. Yep. And I end up either having to deal with the, the contents of their basement and, and so forth. And so some of the things come my way via that route. If they, people think you like photography, they say, here, here's this old camera. I don't yeah. want it. Right. And that's it. They, and that starts like building. Yeah. Yep. And next thing you know, you know if, they like, if they think you know something about Argus cameras, next thing you know, you've got Argus cameras coming at your ears. Right. No, that seems, you're not, we've heard that from Matt. We've heard that. It's like these Argus cameras that you just, they're every other place. Is that a Midwest thing? Or is that where, is that like a local thing? They're just everywhere? Well, it was. Of course, made in Ann Arbor. Right. Yeah. So that's and it yeah. was they was Argus were probably the most affordable thirty five millimeter right. cameras mm-hmm. until Kodak got right. their act together. Right. Right. Argus cameras were so popular that do you think Kodak's like, hey, wait a minute? Well, Kodak, <laughs> you no, know, we, they, we they had the film. Oh, we, audience. We, 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 the American Leica. Ah. Oh. The American. Look at that. Look at that. The Argus C three is is that decked out. The American Leica. Well, the thing is, 
The Argus A was their first model, and it, they sold thousands of them within a few months. And so there's a hunger, hunger for a small portable camera that was easy to use. Wow. Kodak actually had some really good 35-millimeter cameras, but all the really good ones were made in Germany. So the ones that were made, Kodak was a box camera seller, basically. And so by the time that Kodak started producing cameras, the first ones were basically derivatives of the, of the Bantam and the pony and so right. forth mm. and they had other models and they were not bad but they weren't they, none of them have the longevity of like an argus c3 because they're really rugged and fairly oh, yeah. simple to take care of do you shoot often with argus cameras these days uh not very often i mean if i'm really serious about shooting something i'll use a, a modern camera but every year there is an argus day and it's oh. now it's i think i 11th or t- maybe it's the 13th year, 14th year. So it would be August 14th, I think. I'm not sure. And that would be Argus 14th. What, what, mm. go- what goes on? And people are just go out and shoot with an Argus camera. And then there's usually a website somewhere where you can submit your photos to mm-hmm. and for that Argus day. Mm. I used to be big in collecting Argus and all that. And uh, I basically sold off all of my collection except for a few things I'd like to use now and then. Is Argus still in business? No, uh, their name lives on by how you know they sell the, their these trade names back and forth to different companies. They but, do like but, what? like Harry Potter. Well, like <laughs> Bell and Howell, you know. Oh right. And you know, Bell and Howell doesn't exist as a company anymore. Um, there's some other ones, but Argus would be another example of that. I think it's owned by some Chinese company. The name Argus the is the name owned. Argus is, is that owned. right? Yeah, I but see the little... company itself died. Really died in, in about 1968 or 69. Yeah. I see little junky Argus point and shoots at the. Thrift stores occasionally, yeah. too, from oh. the 90s even. So. Yeah, and there's, again, it's just a, a trade name. Sold it to, yeah. to the Chinese thing. And yeah. The, yeah, okay. the that company that once existed, it went through several iterations, but, yeah, it's dead. If you want to know more about Argus, you can pick up the, uh, there's a book called Argomania, which has all you oh. need to know about Argus. Wow. That's cool. Argomania. That. Argomania. we got Arguses all over the place. To look that up. Yeah. Our next show, we're going to be talking about Argus. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yes. That's a pirate's favorite camera, you know. Oh, Argus. Argus. Yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we talk about, should we talk about what's your favorite camera these days? Okay. <laughs> oh, you think about it. We'll take a quick break. Okay. We'll come back. Cool. Do you love the Film Photography Podcast? Show your support. Visit our online store at filmphotographyproject.com. That's right. Your purchases at our store support this show. What show? (laughs) You're not only supporting the podcast, but you're also supporting our ample giveaway programs and our workshops. Just go to filmphotographyproject.com and click the store button. Good golly, Miss Molly. We're an official reseller of Kodak Alaris Films. That's right. Impossible Project Instant Films. Super amazing. And our very own FPP hand-rolled films. You're one-stop shopping. I have to tell you, I spent all my waking hours, no joke, (laughs) seeking out awesome films for your 35mm and 120 cameras. Most notably is the addition of Shmina Films. Shmina from Eastern Europe. That's right, Shmina Films. Right in our very FPP store, you'll see the famous Shmina FN64, Photo 100, Photo 200, Photo 400, and lots more. 
as well as Eastman Kodak black and white motion picture film. That's right. That's right for your 35mm still camera. Such stocks as Eastman Double X, Eastman High Contrast 5363, and the awesome Kodak Fine Grain 2366. Check out all these unique film stocks right at filmphotographyproject.com. Hey, hey, thanks. Let's get back to more show. Hey, we're back. Hey, we're back. Beautiful. Hey, before we talk about Minolta cameras, what's your, uh, Mark uh, O'Brien, what's your favorite camera these days? Like, grab, film camera to grab and go out and shoot. That's like asking a parent what their favorite child is. Do you do, yeah. Yeah, right? do you shoot by, nice. like, you grab a camera based on mood? Like, hey, I'm kind of in this mood today. I might grab it by which one has a film in it I want to shoot for that mm. particular thing. Mm-hmm. So you know, I pick up a camera and go, oh, it's got Ektar 100 in it. I don't want to shoot black and white. So I know I have another roll of film in another, another Nikon somewhere. So I, I probably, my favorite camera to shoot with in terms of 35 millimeter would be a Nikon F100 because mm-hmm. it's so versatile. But I have this nice, beautiful Nikon FE. Speaking of cameras coming mm. your way, that a faculty member gave to me wow. a couple months ago, and the thing looks like it's brand new. Yeah, look at that. And FE was my first manual Nikon camera, and, uh, and this is much, much better shape than that one ever was. So right now, it's the FE is my my favorite camera. Mm, very nice. So quick question on that camera. Have you actually shot with it yet? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Mainly because I was wondering if the guy that or friend that gave it to you is one of those people that is, that causes... The, is the reason why you can't buy any used tripods anymore? Because it's got the, the block still on the bottom of the camera? Oh, no, that's, <laughs> uh, no, that's, that's mine. I know. <laughs> so many times you'll see like a great tripod at a, at a garage show or something, and then you go, oh. The quick release is it's, missing. So they left it on the camera when like, they gave dude, the camera you away. find your camera and get the yeah. plate for and this tripod. Like, this was a $200 tripod. Now I can't. Yeah, no, it's garbage. Anyway. Actually, I have on all my cameras, I have the same quick release. Oh, that's brilliant. It's a man mm-hmm. for my Manfrotto tripod. And so ah, I, and I, I have a couple dozen of these things that rotate around, and right. I don't have to go look for one. So yeah, that uh, makes sense. But yeah, the FE is a nice camera. Now, why are you pa- passing it along? You're keeping that, I'm right? keeping it. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm keeping this. Yeah, yeah. shocked look on Mark. <laughs> what else uh, you, sh- like, uh, as far as from a box camera, you're shooting with your, like uh, a TLR, you're shooting with your Mamiya? Yeah, Mamiya. I'm my Mia C330. I love it. It's a gr- great, it's great dealer. Right? It's big. Yeah, it's it's, it's a not a, it's not a camera that you would want to take with you on a long hike. So you don't feel self conscious because everyone comes around and bothers you while you're shooting with it. No, if you actually have something like this Yashica A. TLR. Oh, look at that. I have yeah. one of those. And they're yeah. very moderately priced. They were yeah. moderately priced when they came out, and they're still pretty cheap now. I think I paid 30 bucks for this one from wow. a friend. The thing is, with a TLR, people aren't used to seeing people mm. use them, and mm. so they might be very curious, or, they'll, or else you'll hear someone say, I had one of those. Yeah. Right. You know, um, it's usually some crusty old guy, yeah. who, who uh, soon I'll be one of those crusty old guys. So anyway, the funny thing with these is that you're looking down into the camera and not looking at your subject, so they don't really feel that you're taking their photograph. And so they're little, really good for street oh, photography. Interesting, yeah. And uh, they're... And because of the, the waist level viewfinder, and that's why 120 film is a good medium for that because it's a big negative, right? So you've got a big image to look at. If it was mm-hmm. a 35 millimeter, 
the image is so tiny mm-hmm. that for me with bifocals, it, it's almost impossible to use a 35 millimeter waist wow. viewfinder. But they're they're great and they're they're discreet cameras and they're very quiet too because the shutter they have leaf shutters which are very quiet. Yeah, you don't have this big mirror slap going <laughs> kerchunk. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. the problem with the, with that camera with no light meter is people don't realize you're taking a picture of them. Except before you take the picture, when you're holding up your cell phone as a light meter, yeah, right. Everyone thinks you're taking a picture, <laughs> no, and they start smiling. No, it's no, just a light meter. It's just a, yeah. I just use Sony 16 means. and let it go for that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Let's uh, segue into our, our Minolta chatter for this episode. Uh, Minolta, of course, favorite of uh, Mark Dalzell, and of course, super favorite of Leslie. Right? I mean, I, I like Minolta. Super favorite. Not, not my top, but it's not the top. They're yeah. good cameras. I'm an Ollie girl. Oh. X700. Yeah. Ollie. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. She just yeah. has some really nice Minolta. I got my X700 here. Oh, you do? Yeah. Very nice. Where? Let's, it's over there. Let's start with uh, the older of the group that we have here today, the SRT. Oh, the SRT. Yes, RT. Is it one oh? Is it one hundred one or one hundred two? I have two hundred here. Two hundred. How many? What kind of numbers did we have? Oh, they had tons of one hundred. Oh, get. Actually, Cupcake. the whole reason I even tried this was a, a, a listener. So you never. We you cut it out. I'm, I'm making ice cream over here. Okay. <laughs> Drill <Drilling> teeth. <laughs> uh, a listener said you've never talked about the SRTs, and I oh, well. Probably should go get one to talk about it. Yeah. I didn't have to. There's a gentleman here in town um, who let me borrow his. So uh, I double-dutied it and put some of the new uh, Shvima film in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And oh, yeah. I did and tested it with My the uh, SRT200. And I just thought I would talk about the 200 in general, although the SRT line was introduced in 1966. And for Minolta itself, it was really a big step forward because it was the first wide-open metering system. When you stopped down to meter to get the correct aperture, it didn't get dark inside. Mm. And that was fantastic. So they had to have come out with a new line of lenses, which were the MC lenses, meter coupled. Uh, You can use the old style, but of course... This is the SRT 101? This is the the SRT line. Okay. Mm -hmm. What was the first one called? Um, 101? 101, 101. Okay. Oh, maybe not. It may have been the SRT one. No, that was at the end. I thought the 102 came out first, and then the 101 came out. They're really mixed up, and it may have been like that, yes. The whole line lasted 15 years, but uh, they're kind of like Timexes. You just keep beating them up, and they just keep working. The 200, even though it sounds like it's higher than the line, higher number, is really very, very, very basic. It came out in 75, only two years, 75 to 77. This particular camera has everything you need, a maximum shutter speed of 1,000. There is no self-timer. There is no mirror lockup. There is a depth of field preview. No safe load feature. That never bothered me. I don't know if it bothers you guys. I never use that anyway. I load the film, wind it back. I don't trust it. Advance to one and go. So it's not not a big deal on that. It has... What I call donut metering. It's the match needle. Looks like a donut on the end of a stick. You know, you yeah, line it up. Yeah, yeah awesome. donut yeah, meter. Yeah, but yeah. they call it match needle. Typical, very <laughs> typical consumer camera. You've got a 94% viewfinder. So okay. instead of a 98 or even more that the higher line would have. In itself, uh, they all would take the 625 battery. All the SRTs did. Oh, I see. So you can have them upgraded or just put an alkaline in it. It really doesn't matter. An A625 in it instead of a silver. So it used to be the 625, the 1.3 volt? Yeah. 1.35 volt. Okay. 1.35 volt. Oh, so that's, yes. a whole, that's a whole can of worms there. Yeah, we, it, yeah, it is. But you know how many people shoot chrome anymore, you know, to get, right. you know. 
Of course, that can of worms and you is really half a donut off or, because yeah. the camera's so old that at Mark Dalzell, as you know, shutters are not the accurate. Shutters are going to be no. way off anyway. So the whole, I know. as you would say, put print film in there. Put print film in it. <laughs> and even though this 200 was only manufactured for two years, there's still changes amongst it that some of them have hot shoes. Some of them have cold hot shoes. Shoe. So hot shoe, did you get it? Come on. Hot shoe. There you go. Um, there were some that... The mirror lockups, they came in black, they came in silver, like they, they did have Different models. Yeah, different different oh, different yes, they too. went all, all out on some of the others, the higher-end models. But uh, yeah. this was the low-end consumer model, the 200. What's that mean when you say mirror lockup versus non-mirror lockup? Well, sometimes if you're doing a long exposure, you want this camera absolutely as steady as possible. Oh. And as was mentioned earlier, that mirror slap can be Slaps loud, up. but there's also vibration to it. So lock the mirror up. You frame mm. it, focus. You frame it, focus, lock, lock it up, up. shoot it. Mm-hmm. Then... Some cameras you cannot do that with. Many cameras you cannot do that with. It also makes it very quiet because when you take the shot, there's no mirror slap. You You also cannot see through it. Right. You flip the mirror up, so it's your last step. Very nice. That's pretty much it. You can't say too much else about it except it's just a good workhorse of a camera, and um, it performed well for my test. Thanks to uh, Frank Wilson for letting me borrow his camera. That's pretty much it. From that point on, they went into, I think, what they called their X-series. XGMs, XGAs, right, and morphed on into the Maxim series after that. Wow. But in between is, John has an X camera. John, are you awake? Yes, he's the X series, yes. (laughs) I'm awake. I'm listening to Leslie. Okay. (laughs) Hachu! You have the X seven hundred, yes, and you got you got that sometime in the bought mid- a brand 20- new in the mid eighties, mid eighties, probably uh, yeah, early eighties actually, and still shooting great. I have it here with me uh, today. Eighty three, I think. I so. think yeah. so. Yeah. You know, yeah, I think it was new. the last X camera to go too. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. Mm-hmm. I saved up for that thing. Did you? I saw an ad for it in a photography magazine. I'm like, I want that camera. Why did you it's want my it? first camera? Because it looked beautiful. It had everything I wanted, you know, manual. Uh, and, and, uh, you had to go down to Corvettes to get that? No, I bought it at a camera shop in uh, Clifton, New Jersey. Like a Clifton camera shop? Probably, yeah. They took you for a ride. They sell you all the accessories? No, I just bought the standard 50-millimeter lens. Okay. That was took it. you for a ride. <laughs> hey, kid, come here. Hey, come here. So, no, you need this lens. You need, you so, need this uh, lens. So into the late 80s, the Maxim. And Mark's been very quiet, but Mark, you're like a Minolta fanatic. Or are you so quiet because you now moved on to Nikon and you don't care? No, I, I I still have an Ulta. I have all of these cameras that we've that we've mentioned. Yeah, the X series ran from seventy uh, seven ish up to. I mean, the the X seven hundred came out in eighty three. The next the next phase for them was was when they came out with the Maxim series, which was a complete shift in all of their designs. So that so the Maxim the yeah, seven thousand. Well, it, it turned into plastic. It turned into autofocus. It turned into complete electronic LCD screen. Looked like a VCR. Deal. Yeah, yeah so, ugly. Yeah. I, I I think it's not very attractive, um, but yeah, I've got a seven thousand. You, you seem fascinated with them. It's it's interesting. I mean, it's got that that eighties sound. You know, Ooh, and, yes. So like, it has that nice little tight plasticky eighties auto wine sound. So the name is Rio. As soon as you do that sound, I want to start. I start sitting, like thinking of the shoe tan jingle in my head. It's like <laughs> shoe tan girls on really? film. Well, that's it. I hear. Freeze anyway. frame. Freeze frame. So yeah. So this is the this is the seven thousand. This came out in nineteen eighty five. <laughs> is that right? And uh, this has the distinction of being the first autofocus body SLR camera. So, Successful. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, the, the <laughs> camera before it, the five thousand. That's not the first autofocus. Like, what's the difference? The five thousand preceded that, correct? 
Uh, I don't think so. Seven was first. Yeah, seven was what? first. Seven was first, then the five. Yeah, oh. yeah but you, yes, it was a made a cheaper version, higher end, five fewer okay. features. The, yeah, the number the number de- denotes more the features it's got rather than when it oh. comes out. So the lower number means lower features. Okay, um, but yeah, so this is the seven thousand, which is the first. So uh, yeah, I mean Nikon Pentax um, had autofocus cameras out, but like the Pentax, I have one of those. The uh, ME Super is it? That had an autofocus lens, but the lens itself has the motor inside, and the lens takes AA batteries. So the lens is like as big as the camera, and that's an autofocus, but Mm -hmm. it's it's all terrible looking. So this is the first first that the the autofocus is inside the body, and the lens is just a lens. So first, meaning this came out before like the EOS or the Nikon. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, way ahead. Right. And this also was the first to incorporate, as you just heard, um, the auto wind inside the body. Oh, so, that's, oh, so without having to yeah, put a winder on it, too, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the wind is inside. Very the versatile camera. It's a great little camera. It's, uh, I mean, it's Oof. it's got kind of limited controls on the front. It's got program mode, aperture priority, shutter priority, you know, full manual. But it's got buttons on it like a, you know, like, like, like a mid eighties like technique oh, stereo. Like yeah, like a, yeah, yeah. It just it's just kind of plasticky, watch. but it does everything you need to do. Um, you know, I like shooting with it just because it's got everything built into it. Uh, you know, this is really the first autofocus camera I've ever used. So it is kind of, it feels nice and lazy to just be able to hold it up sort of to my eye and point it sort of where I want to take a picture and it does it by itself, which is maybe overly simplistic. But, uh, and the auto wind is kind of fun too. So right. This one has got a knot tied in the neck strap right now because this is the one I give to my three-year-old daughter. Okay. And she walks around with this hanging off her and she could, you know, take pictures around the house. So she loves it. <laughs> Your daughter being as young as she is, does she tend to go through a roll in 30 seconds or is she thoughtful? Oh, she's never shot film with it. She just... <laughs> She just thinks it's, she's, she's just accessorizing. <laughs> it just sounds like she's shooting, but I gotcha. but she gets you know she lines you up, she positions you, she likes to get the lighting just right, and oh. um, and then the other thing about these was um, there was uh, I mentioned it briefly with Leslie earlier, which the 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 early Minolta uh, aficionados out there are, are waiting to hear us talk about it, which is the crossed X logo. He's nodding yep. too. <laughs> the so X when over these X. when these first came out, the Maxim, which just says Maxim on the front of the camera, mm-hmm. the two X's overlapped like the Exxon yes. logo, um, which they were immediately sued by Exxon. Exxon yes. came down on Minolta like a giant oily hammer. Like well, that totally that's kind of what they do. Exactly. <laughs> On um, all of us yet today. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Right. That's what that's we always said. So, so immediate, uh, Minolta was immediately forced to change all their logos. And I, I actually hadn't heard this, but uh, Leslie said they had to recall the cameras. Even. Yeah, we had to send what cameras we had back. Now, what uh, about the uh, ones that are out there? Are they worth more to have the X? Oh. Do you ha- own any? I was going to say $10 more. Yeah, my you may my see lens has got the double X logo on it. Right there right now? So that's, yeah, mm-hmm. that's right there. Right now. That's got the Exxon. Ride the, ride the Maxim Exxon. The Exxon unapproved yeah. design. Yeah, <laughs> the adult-only version. Max 666-some. See, that's where it says Oh, Maxim. look at that. It overlaps. Whoa. Or, better off not. doesn't look good. Yeah. I, didn't I like don't think that so. You, you, you like this way? No, no. I don't like the, the double nah. over. But, um, but anyway, just a little interesting side, side notes. Yeah. Also, wasn't that the last of their cameras to use a standard ISO hot shoe? And they went to the other ones yes, later on. Yes, you are correct. That, that, oh, it's they right. They went yeah. to this. Yes. Yeah. Which, oh. I, yeah, which is ugly. Excuse my French, but it's a correct term. Or they went to a bastard shoe. Yeah. Wow, that's just not standard. Shoe on that not one is regular. Right. It's, it's, it fits a regular flash, but it also has all the Minolta pins. Yes. So it will communicate so with the Minolta flash. So you can put a 283 on it easy. 
But no, on, can't on do it here without an adapter. What model is the camera you have, Leslie? Um, duh, my little 600 SI that I drag around. So that's a Maxim 600 SI. Yes. And they changed the hot shoe so that's only it's uh, proprietary for yes, their. Yes, it is. That's although although they made all the adapters, but that's just another little half inch hunk yeah. of plastic sitting in there with a great big flash on it, ready to collapse. It's like my Nikon F3 I have on the chair we talked about last or a couple episodes ago that used a freaky mm-hmm. Nikon did the same thing. Yeah, that, remember the, the flash on that mounts onto the rewind knob? Mm, because right. the head's removable. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was crazy. It, it's such a weird design. I think all the companies were getting, getting too big for their britches and were trying to change the standard. So the they all F3, came out with their own ideas. But the F3 was an outgrowth of the F2 and the F1, and those all had the same kind of features since you could re- replace the, the mirror prism you couldn't have the hot shoe on the prism right. um, without having a bunch mm, of extra contacts. Right. I'm thinking Canon did not do that. Sorry. I was just going to ask you, did EOS do that at about the right time? But you can put a 283 on it, fires it, you just have yeah, to set it? Yeah, just, uh, just had different contacts for automatic, for the t flash. Right, but as long as your center one's there, it'll still fire a traditional, Yeah, everybody else shied away from that. Yeah, It'll fire dumb. Is there a refrigerator in here? No. Did you need one? I was wondering where all the Mrs. Browns are, Browns are kept. They're behind the bar. What's They're, the name of the meatball? Can't you see that? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> can't you see our breath as we talk? I don't think you need a refrigerator. <laughs> We're here in Finlay, folks. Folks listening. Are they yeah. still listening? A chilly yes. November day in Ohio. Yes, actually, yes, it's July first. It it's cold for July. <laughs> July. Yeah, it's very cold for July. So, folks out there listening, you can write into the podcast. Podcast at filmphotographyproject.com. Ooh. You know, tell us what's going on. What are you, you know, what are you shooting with this summer? What's what's happening? If you have any film you want to, you know, not using, you want to send to the FPP or a camera that works. Some film you really love. Or something you want to hear us talk about. Or the some SRT. film that you is shot that you haven't processed. <laughs> Does that make any sense? No, nope. so. none of this makes any sense. Any other, any more Minolta chatter? Because otherwise, we're winding down for the show. I got a funny, quick uh, give a kid a camera story. Not a darn thing on the Minolta. Okay, it's not Dane. a Minolta story. Give it's a actually kid a, camera. a. Oh, is, is your story a Minolta story, Mark? Well, I was just going to say Mark? I left my Minolta seven thousand kid at or seven hundred kid at home. I was okay. going to bring it down. So, mm. okay. great. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> See you next year. Uh, though this show is two marks. Nice life. So it's more like the Beastie Boys. Like we have Mark D. It's Mark D. Yo, yo. Dark D. Yeah. Dark, dark, darky D. So I went to a, I went to a New Year's years year or so ago, and it was a friend's party, and there were a lot of kids running around. So I had my cameras. I'm like, oh, I'll bring in a bunch of, I'll bring in like three Minolta point and shoots. So I had like the, a couple of the stylus, the stylus zoom and a yeah. stylus the one i drove holes in the back with just handed them out to the kids and so i just walked in a kid oh, what's it do what's it do what do i you know where do i see them or whatever i'm like just just here just take this you take that you just go take pictures of stuff then they came back in about 15 minutes okay they don't work anymore and i'm like oh, geez they went through 336 rolls you know yeah, but smokes. the one kid that didn't one kid was like he was lining up his shots. He was oh. making little things with his toys, with his monster trucks. And, and he like would only take, because he understood. I was like, look, you only get yeah. this many. So we got a long night ahead of you. You know, take your time. And he, he held that thing at going to like about, must have been two and a half hours. He was wow. still just waiting. And yeah, I showed him how to take the tape off the back, let light leaks in and stuff. You know, he was like <laughs> five, six. And uh, so then he actually, at the end of the night, he's like, he was, this was so great. Wow. And I was like, oh, you know what? Keep it. So he's like, well, how do I, what do I do? The, the mom was like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Yeah, you know? right. And I'm like, well, you just take it to Walgreens or CVS. They'll do it. And, uh, yeah, it was a $2 Olympic 
one of those stylists that, you know, on a, from a flea market. Yeah, like $10 for the mom to process the film now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, so, and, and so I, I actually got the, some of the other cameras filmed back, and I processed it, and it was all, like, close-ups of, like, their cell. One girl must have taken 13 <laughs> pictures of her, no, yeah. like, of her nose. Ding, 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 ding. That's what kids do. And then there was, like, but there would be, like, two or three that were, like, awesome. You know, so I still had to put them on the Flickr, yeah. but, you know. They're on the Flickr? I have, I have to, I just scanned them in, and they're, uh, of course, you know me. This was two, this is uh, New Year's 2013. I just yeah. finally got around to scanning it. Like, oh, yeah. We're all we're all on Flickr, by the way. So, Mark yeah. O'Brien, how do you, people get to you on Flickr? Would be under MFO photos. Mofo. M F. Photos. <laughs> photos. No problems. <laughs> photos. Or just just look under Mofo. <laughs> M F O'Brien. That's M F O'Brien. There you go. There okay. You go. Uh, I think I think I'm Michael Rosso at Film Photography. Yeah. I'm or sure. just says Film Photography, film photography Project Podcast. Now it just says yeah, it's your oh, name. Yeah. It's got your name. Mm-hmm. How about you, John? I'm I'm What's the very pretentious again? John Eyes the World. John Eyes the, the World. world. Yeah, E-Y-E-S. What do you wow. call it? With a picture of him with his brain flashing in. Yeah, he's, <laughs> yeah. his mind is What's expanding. Your name? My whole face. I think I'm either Mark Delzell or Metropolis Music. I think you're Mark Delzell. Mark Delzell. Delzell. Mark Delzell, okay, yeah. And I'm Dane J777. Leslie? I'm U-T-A-C-H. I was a big Steve Vai fan in the 80s. What do you want? Exactly. <laughs> Instead of 666. I'm U-T-C-H-A-T. Yeah, that's right. U-Chat. Yep. U-Chat. U-Chat. It's an Egyptian thing. Yeah. I have trouble tagging you in photos. I don't know why. Hmm, okay. I, I was well, trying. Because I use my... You took it off. Yeah. You, you, you took that permission away. Yeah, I keep I try and add you, and I can't add you. It's, it's this person that has... Yes, not same really. Yeah. I don't Jim, know why Jim that is. Too. I'll fix it. I, I, don't, yeah. I tried so to put Jim. Yeah, Jim is yeah, I noticed that with him. Oh, well. Okay, I mean, I'll fix that. I, no, I don't know why it's changed. I just, there was a bunch of ones I put up the other day. Okay. Like, ah, Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. You know, we're going to end the show with is that song from, I think it's the oh, first. Sir Mix a Lot. I love Sir Mix a Lot. <laughs> <laughs> I like big butts. <laughs> I think it's the first... Wasn't uh, this the large format show? <laughs> no. I think it's the first... <laughs> oh, boy. First Pink Delicates album, it starts off with, like, you hear, like, surf, like, you hear, like, the beach. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then it's, like, a really, like... It's, like, rock and roll-y. You know? It's a surf song. Surf song, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah it's in the middle of the uh, first What's album. it called? Surf Pajama Party. Oh, that's, that's great. That's it. One. That's an surf awesome Pajama that's Perfect awesome for July 1st. I'm sure everyone's yeah. getting their surfboards out, all their, their yeah, union suits. You know I am. You know, yeah. That's when you used to have that drum set with the bullet holes in it. Yeah, that was awesome. Oh, those that was days. that little blue uh, snare that you hated. Oh, yeah. It had the three three snares yep. on the bottom. Yep. Oh, sounds great. Now. It was like a toy snare. Yeah. It, the snares That's you didn't use snare. lug nuts. Yeah, you yeah. used uh, they had little clips. Rip they, in tune though. They were Rip. pre-tuned heads. But we're gonna see everyone in two weeks. Fascinating. Two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. You sound like a and Mark. Really appreciate you coming down, Mark. Oh. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, Good to see you. Awesome. Yeah. Really cool. And as a matter of fact, we have so much stuff to, to still talk about. Why don't you come back in two weeks? Sounds good to me. Yeah! Yeah! Oh, oh one more thing. Yeah. Cupcake. Oh. <laughs> All right. That was inside. Okay. Bathroom break. That's a main joke. Oh. oh. Cupcake. No, but I didn't really, but you'll all think I did when you hear it later. <laughs>
chicks Let's fill the top with green alcohol Set up tickets, put on PJs Start sprinting, say no Twenty-four.